Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. If you've never heard us before, good news, pretty simple concept. We interview educators, and every educator that we have on is nominated by the people who listen to this show. We think that teaching is a pretty unique profession and that almost everyone has a teacher, coach, or professor who inspired them or helped them become the person they are today. So, Tell us about the person who comes to your mind when I say that. Shoot us an email at teacherslounge at niu.edu, and they could be featured on the next episode of the show. Who knows? Today, we have a professor on the show. It is Dr. Lori Cooper Stoll from the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. She's an author and sociology professor and researcher who studies social inequities, gendered violence, and fat studies, which is primarily what we talk about on this podcast. She also has a website and a blog she runs along with a colleague, Dr. Darcy Toon, called Two Fat Professors, where they fight fat phobia with education, community building, and, as they say, a lot of sass. As Dr. Cooper Stoll says, we all have bodies, so whenever we discuss topics like this, it's incredibly personal. And we talk so much in this episode about how we're trained as a society to view our bodies and to view other people as well. It's so personal and it's remarkable how much we can learn by analyzing and critiquing those systems. And we go way in depth on Lori's work with fat studies, fat phobia, diet culture, so much more. And I know these are topics that we really haven't explored with an educator on this show before, so I am really excited for you to hear it. And let's just get right into my conversation with author and professor, Dr. Lori Cooper Stoll. I'm fundamentally aware of why it's a fascinating issue for me. In between my first and second year of college, I lost 50 pounds. Okay. And just like traversing within that and, and, you know, everything that comes along with it has been like one of the strangest experiences of my life. I was reading some of your blog posts today on, on Two Fat Professors and... You mentioned, and I, and I know that, uh, that Dr. Darcy uh, mentions the same thing about how, like, when you get into fat studies, there's, like, there's more resistance and more pushback on that topic from strangers and people engaging with it than almost anything else. And that is so, f- why do you think that is? I, oh my gosh, such an important <laughs> question. Okay, so... Why I think that is, is because I think that fundamentally in our culture, we fear, um, hate, and loathe fat bodies. That's my simple, straightforward response to that. As someone who has spent really my entire career studying systems of oppression, that was something that was surprising to me to see the backlash I received from doing this work as compared to some of the other work that I do, it was almost as if, okay, arguing that fat people should be treated with respect is like a bridge too far. Um, And yeah. It's so interesting. And there's so many different angles that we can go in and we're gonna go in a lot of directions. But we think about, I just think, you know, media wise and even like within your family and within just general social circles, fat people are one of the only social groups that we have that it's just like completely cool to make fun of, discriminate against, just completely openly and without really regard at all. Yeah. So we live in this era that has 
we refer to as healthism. That's a, a term that was coined by Robert Crawford in, in 1980. And one of the things that I always point out is that we need to recognize that fat phobia existed like long before right. we medicalized and pathologized fat bodies. Mm-hmm. But given the history of the way we have medicalized and pathologized fat bodies, and given the culture in which we live, not only the, not only is the expectation that we are con- continuously monitoring our own bodies and policing our own bodies and focused on our own weight and quote unquote health, but that we have an obligation to do that to others. And Susan Greenhall, who's a, um, an anthropologist, talks about this as the biocitizenship society. And that in a biocitizenship society, um, the, it, it differentiates between sort of good biocitizens and bad biocitizens. And the good biocitizens are concerned about like their, their weight and their health and what they eat and how they move their bodies. And um, that part of being a good biocitizen is not only doing that for oneself, but that you, in, in order to, you know, um, do your role in the society, you do that to other people, that you have license to do that to other people. Right. And we could even, and I'm sure we will get into like weight bias in the medical field yeah. too. Is it like those, a lot of those health professionals that they're like, I'm doing you a favor by, by saying these things to you, right? It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, with your classes, what level are the, like, do you have people that are kind of coming into those classes and experiencing and talking about these things for the first time a lot? So for that class in particular, this yeah. is the third semester that I have taught the class. Yeah. Because of COVID, interestingly <laughs> enough, I've taught it in three different modalities every sure. time I've taught it. Yeah. Because it's an upper level class, I would say that there are students by and large who are coming to the class haven't taken previous coursework in the ways that systems of oppression operate, work together to produce injustice. But they are often drawn to that class because, well, there's no other class to my knowledge that is on our campus. Actually, it's very rare across campuses in the U.S. to have such a class as well. This is a new area of study for them, but in some ways they are often primed because it's an upper level class in terms of just understanding that that, that inequality exists. Yeah. Um, so there are varying degrees of prior knowledge, sure. but it is by and large new for them. Because I was wondering when you're starting up and you're in the first couple weeks of those classes and you have people that are opening up to it for some of the first times that maybe don't have as much experience, like what are the first initial conversations and light bulb moments that you're like, right there, that's it, that's that's exciting. Yeah, so the first thematic unit we do in the class is all about the history of the medicalization and pathologization of fat bodies. And I often point out that as a sociologist whose work is focused on inequalities, I would be remiss not to mention that you are the author of books. Yeah, so I, I am most interested in like, how do we change policy? How do we change practice? How do we change, change structures? I, it'd be great if I didn't have to have like start the class all on this particular 
like theme, but both in my class, but also when I'm asked to give talks on this subject as well, I have just found very quickly that if I don't dispel some common myths, that it is very hard to get students to move like deeper into the material. So like the first several class periods are all about like, how is it that, you know, obesity came to be defined as a disease? Um, if you are fat, does that mean you're inherently unhealthy? If you're thin, does that mean you're inherently healthy? Um, we, we, one of the things I often say in class is follow the money. So we look at like who funds research on fat bodies. Um, we look at the vested interests that are behind efforts to medicalize and pathologize fat bodies. So I would say in general, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a class that it is not uncommon for students to use the term life-changing, um, which I, which I am as the professor of the class, you know, thrilled to hear that students feel that it has that degree of an impact on them. In fact, I am doing, uh, I've been collecting data on that class for three years now and in the mm. midst of doing some analysis on it. Um, but light bulbs are going off all the time. So from the early days of the class through the end. And would you say the big myth, the big pervasive one, like the one that I feel like people who have never taken a class on this before and have never really deeply, you know, tried to analyze these systems, is it just more weight equals more unhealthy is the overall blanket number one myth? Yeah. So some of the most common um beliefs that students come with come to the class with is the notion that um, that we're in the midst of an obesity epidemic that um, we have adopted this language of epidemic when we talk about fat bodies as if it's something you catch which is um, a tough a, a tough word to use in 2020 and 21 right to describe something like that yeah yeah exactly um i you know, have had students who I, who identify as fat who think that if they, you know, eat a hamburger, they're going to keel over and die. Like people are terrified um, over, you know, it, you know, um, body weight because the assumption again is that if you are over a, a certain weight, then you are inherently unhealthy. So, which feeds into one of the other common myths, which is that obesity causes a, a host of illnesses, many of which are life-threatening. There is a tendency within research on obesity to draw causal links when if there are links that exist at all, they are, um, more correlative. And in addition to that, almost never do you see the variable weight stigma included in that data analysis. And we know that weight stigma is an independent risk factor, um, in, including for psychological distress, which feeds into the uh, earlier question that you meant, the, the point you made about our feeling that we have license to um, engage in health trolling with people who are fat or, or shame them. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was reading some research this morning that was 
on a similar vein talking about like BMI and, and drawing these correlation or these causal points from you know, higher BMI equals all of these health risks when they were looking at, well, are we accounting for just like activity level? And if you have a higher BMI, but you have a higher activity level, then, you know, these things are offset and things like this. And uh, BMI, I, again, I think that when we talk about it in regards to COVID, since it's being weighed into, you know, vaccine efforts and, and things like that, which it seems like BMI is like the SAT of body measurements where it's like, there's really no reason for to use it besides that we all know how to use it and it's kind of easy. Oh, exactly. It's convenient. Um, it, it's very convenient to measure height and weight. It, it, it was never designed to be used as a proxy for health, even though that's what we have come to use it as. But when you mention activity, um, one of the things I often point out is that um, you know, fitness level is a much, has a much stronger correlation with health outcomes than, than weight does. Um, but we continue to rely on BMI just because it's easier to measure height and weight than some, than, than a more complex measure such as fitness. I even went on the CDC's website when they talk about BMI and they have a whole fact section of like, why do we use this? And verbatim, what their website says is, we use it because it only requires height and weight and it's inexpensive and an easy tool. That's it. That's like straight from, that's, I have that quoted from the website. And I'm like, that seems like a weird thing to admit. Yeah, I just had a, a peer reviewed article come out with a colleague. And one of the things that on how in our discipline, the, the role that sociologists can play in promoting ableism and, and fat phobia, but one of the things that I found in looking at major sociology journals over the past decade is that any quantitative studies, um, or let me say it this way, every quantitative study that was in our study used the BMI. So it's it's not it, it, it's not just that it's being used in healthcare settings. It is that it is the most common variable we use in research. Yeah, that's it's really fascinating. I, I, speaking of the research, you mentioned that you've been collecting data from yes. those classes of the last couple of years, have you, uh, you've been starting to look at the analysis and extrapolate things from that? What are the things that are starting to catch your eye? Yeah, so when I designed the, the, the class and was preparing to teach it for the first time, I knew that I was gonna build in some assessments. To, it's, the, it's the first time I'm teaching in class. I'm, I'm a researcher. So of course <laughs> I wanna see like, what is the impact that, that the class has and the types of assessments I was interested in were looking at primarily how attitudes about fat bodies, um, uh, fat phobia, weight stigma, bias, all of those things might change over time throughout the course of the semester. Mm. And I continue to collect that data. What I had not been prepared for and, where, and, and what I'm looking at now in terms of that data is when I designed the class again, I'm thinking about it as a sociologist. And so I'm thinking about, you know, policy, practice, structure, all of those pieces. What I didn't account for is it is kind of impossible to take a class like that and not be personally impacted because to be, you know, put it quite simply, we all have a body. Yes. What I found what kind of shocked me, but also I was just excited to see by the end of the first semester I taught the class, I just 
in listening to students talk about how their relationships with their bodies had changed, even though that's not a learning outcome for the class. Um, I started at that point looking at that data as well. So how students' relationships with their body, their body image, the kinds of what we might call, um, you know, in quotes, but, you know, health behaviors that they engage in. And what I found was that even though, as we might expect, given the culture that we live in, I think a fair description is that our relationships with our bodies always seem to be a work in progress. But after having the class, students' relationships with their bodies had increased significantly. And as I've conducted interviews over the last few months with students who were in that first cohort, that seems to have held true two years out from having the class. And when we look at the research on body image, which is not an area of expertise of mine, um, there's a far from what from what I have found is there are not as many studies around interventions that are successful in changing those relationships with one's body and what it what my initial findings show is that being exposed to a class like this actually does have um, a, a strong impact on that outcome. It's something that when you just say like everyone has a body, you know, that's a very obvious statement, but it's so true, especially with the work in progress of it all. And we talked about it being life-changing and obviously everyone has their own experience of it. You know, again, just speaking anecdotally for myself, I think one of the things is, is like, you know, in my experience, losing a bunch of weight, it was like, or 50 pounds or whatever. It was the experience of after that happening, seeing people and those people being like, Oh, you look so good. Congratulations on that, which actually only doesn't make you feel good, but confirms your worst fears, which was that I must have really looked horrible before and nobody told me. <laughs> no one had the heart to, to, to intervene or say something, right? And this is just, again, anecdotally speaking, but I'd love to get your perspective as a sociologist. I feel like I have met other people in similar situations where they experience like a a body transformation and are no longer perceived as fat or come across that way. And that instead of being like more empathetic and being like, I I can recognize people's humanity and all those things, it's actually sometimes like a weird twisted bootstraps mentality where it becomes a, well, I did this thing Why don't you do this thing? Yes, I have plenty of thoughts on that. (laughs) So let me start where you left off and work my way backwards. The first thing that comes to mind with this, that sort of bootstrap bootstrap mentality you mentioned is that we have this very problematic and wrong view of our bodies as if they are machines. And it's just sort of like calories in, calories out, like, our, our, our bodies are amazing. They're amazing. It's a miracle um, that any of us are alive. Yeah. <laughs> and we, yes. And we, you and I could consume the exact same meal and our bodies would process this in different ways. 
in, in different ways. Um, so one, I think we got to challenge this notion that somehow we're all machines and our bodies work in the exact same ways and, and, and whatnot. The other thing that it, it brings to mind in, in the point that you, you make is that I think about as a researcher, what do we know about quote unquote diets? And what we know is that 90 to 95% of the time they are, they are ineffective and they yes. bring with them a number of concerning um, uh, health consequences. In, in the initial stages of any quote unquote diet, um, it is not uncommon that we might see initial weight loss. The question becomes over time. Um, and when we look over time, that's where we see that two to five years out, most folks who have lost weight will not only have gained that back, but they will have gained back extra weight as well. Um, and I am not here to problematize that extra weight. What I am here to say is if you went to, let's say a physician, you went, you went, let's say I'm a physician. I'm not that kind of doctor, but let's say you came to me and you said, you know, um, and I said, I've got this um, prescription I can give you. It's going to fail. 90, 95% of the time. Um, it may cause high blood pressure. It may increase anxiety or depression. Um, it may contribute to weight. I mean, you get where I'm going with it. I do. Right? Yes. Every, <laughs> pretty much every like bottom, very small print commercial for <laughs> any medication. Yeah. Exactly. So that's something else that comes to mind when we talk about bodies and weight loss. Oh, I've lost, honestly, you know, I, I guess if I'm keeping it a hundred percent real, I would say when someone I see if, if, if when, when someone does lose weight in my mind, knowing the data, you know, it, I always think, you know, um, particularly if they have adopted the attitude that you mentioned, like mm. I did it, why can't you? And so on in my mind, I think let's just wait because, mm -hmm. <laughs> our, yeah. our, our, our bodies are weight diversity is just mm. a fact of human life in the same way height diversity is. We accept that bodies come in different heights and we even seem to be very willing to attribute that to genetics. Mm -hmm. We might say someone is genetically tall or someone is genetically short, but when it comes to body weight, we think everyone can and should be thin. But what that has meant has changed over time. So in 1997, for example, when the National Institutes of Health lowered their threshold, for overweight and obesity, um, over a million people went to bed one night and woke up overweight, not having gained an additional pound, but because those guidelines have changed. And, and was there any reason for those guidelines changing? What, what was the impetus for that? Either. Yeah, so prior to the World Health Organization had convened an expert panel to consider whether or not their guidelines for overweight and obesity should be lowered. Um, what the public was largely unaware of at the time was that um, those recommendations, um, some of the key players in advancing the recommendation that those levels be can I guess lowered, this is a, can I guess this is a follow the money situation? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, were funded by 
yeah, the, um, the world, um, oh, I, I hope I get this right. Um, I think it was the, the IOTF, the International Obesity Task Force, perhaps. Um, I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But an organization that was largely funded by Hoffman LaRoche and Abbott Laboratories, makers of diet drugs, Meridians and Acal, um, played a, a significant, uh, had a significant impact in, in shaping um, the outcome of that. Well, then the National Institutes of Health had to decide whether or not, in the U.S., whether or not we would adopt the new lower thresholds that the sure. World Health Organization had recommended. And ultimately, we decided to do that so that our numbers would be in line with the World Health Organization. But others who um, have documented that um, change have pointed out that the panel in the U.S. also thought that 25 for a threshold of overweight was a round number that people would be more easily able to remember. So when I'm talking about this in the classroom setting or giving a talk on it, one of the things I often point out, I don't know of a better example I could give you that shows how these categories of what qualifies as, quote, normal weight, overweight, obese, underweight are socially constructed. Mm. Yeah. And the, the diet portion of this, I have so many thoughts on. And, you know, I, I think about I, there's another thing. I, I believe this was from one of the blog posts from from either you or, or your colleague. But we're talking about how, you know, most of the time these diets also lead to you just being more hyper focused and obsessed with food and with weights and about how harmful fat phobia and fat stigma can be to your health not e aside from the actual you know fatness of, of being fat but the stigma and the uh, you know fat phobia of that feeding into it aside from it and you know I think about my my my, my sweet grandmother Elsie Jane wonderful woman and one of the things that I always think about when I think about just like my going to my grandma's house is that she had this little, uh, you know, magnet on her refrigerator that was on there for, you know, my entire life that it was a thing that said like the diet is dot, 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 and you could like flip it on or off. And I'm like, why on earth does that have to be there all the time? Yes. Fat phobia has always been rooted in other systems of oppression, like racism, right. xenophobia, ableism, sexism, um, right. homophobia. And it continues today to intersect with those systems in very problematic ways. As a consequence, this is very much about, even though to some extent, regardless of gender identity and expression, we, we are all impacted by living in what is essentially diet culture, it is very much about cutting women's bodies down to size as well. Mm, yeah. And keeping, uh, and in general, keeping, I always think about like, how might we be working to change the world if we weren't so busy counting calories? It keeps us distracted from dealing with the very systems of oppression and eliminating them that promote that culture in the first place. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about um, you, you, another one. I think one of your posts there was about representation, about fat representation and in research as well, not just like media or something like that, but the the very people that are doing research and, you know, giving keynote addresses on these things. 
And it reminded me of, again, like, it's something that I feel like I'm still figuring out how to have conversations with as someone that is no longer considered to be a fat person. And we talk about intersectionality as a white man along with that about what are the things that I can do on a daily basis that can make a difference and, and help these, you know, dismantle these systems, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what you're really getting at then is how do we engage in fat activism? Yes. And I think about Charlotte Cooper's work here because in her book, literally titled Fat Activism, she <laughs> talked about there being, um, you know, um, five essential aspects of, of fat activism we can engage in. And we have to figure out like, what is the entry point where we're going to enter the work? But to be clear, we must enter it because there's no opting out. And I think mm -hmm. about, for example, something that um, uh, Lindo Bacon, who wrote um, Health at Every Size, co-wrote Body Respect, um, and has a, a new book out as well, um, you know, talked about in their work that in a in a fat phobic society, you are you are either fat and experiencing the, the stigma and discrimination that are associated with that, or you're not fat, but you fear being fat because you know what, you, you know, are aware of how the culture demonizes fat bodies. Right. So none of us, it doesn't matter one's body size can opt out. Um, there are certainly at, at the at the policy level, um, we think about like political process activism. That's one way we can address this. There is um, no national law in the U.S. that protects fat people from discrimination. Um, up until last uh, summer, I believe it was, there was only one state that had a state law that protected um, fat individuals. Um, but there are other ways that we can also engage in this in our everyday lives to the extent that are we thinking about the ways our built environment um, whether or not it's it's accommodating for all bodies. So when you asked me about the experience of teaching, you know, on Zoom, for example, here's yeah. the thing. If, when I have taught this class previously, inevitably I am assigned to a classroom where there are desks that are not accommodating for all students' bodies. And I'm not necessarily talking about students that identify as fat either, but teaching online has allowed for students to have more control over those spaces. Um, I think about policies of the companies or the organizations for which we work and the impact they have. So, you know, at, at my university, we have, you know, um, a, a wellness, you know, um, policy or, or group. Um, I don't know a lot about it because all I need to see is how they'd like to invite me to come in for my biometric screening. And I'm like, fast. <laughs> but th so there's that piece to let. And, and then there's also the everyday interactions that on a micro level that we engage in. And so um, when you, you know, when you talk about, you know, how, how do, how, how does someone who is not fat you know, show up within those spaces? Um, it, it means being aware and calling attention to the fact that um, our environments are not inclusive for all bodies, challenging um, uh, others when we hear 
you know, fat phobic comments or body shaming or comments about what people are eating or, and one of the things I always point out is unless you invite someone into a conversation with you about your body, your body is none of their business. Um, you mentioned earlier comments about weight or, or comments you received once you lost weight. Don't comment on someone's weight. We, we, we don't, don't do that. We, we don't know also what people may be struggling with. For example, um, an illness that may be related to, to, that, to that weight loss. Um, just as we can't look at someone's body and know by looking at them whether or not they are healthy or not, we cannot make assumptions in the same way about um, whether or not they are you know, um, what could be, what may be the cause of how their body may be changing. And there are any number of opportunities to, to practice this given the culture we live in. Yeah. Instead of doing that, if you see that your friend has taken up bicycling, compliment them on that. Yeah. It's, I want to be thoughtful because I'm thinking that here's the deal, even though I do this for a living, I have to stop myself at times because right. I, I describe it to, to my students like this. This is the air we breathe. It's, it's the water that we swim in. I can catch myself at times wanting to comment or, you know, wanting to, you know, oh, I should look at the, the nutrition information on this box. Like, and then I, and then I, you know, I, because I do this work, I can always stop myself and sort of question why that is. But I think the fact that someone who has some expertise in the area is because of the culture we live in, I am continually challenged as well about how I engage within my everyday environments. Right. And I think some of it is what you mentioned before, right? Which is like, if someone's inviting you into a conversation about that, then, you know, obviously be mindful of those things, but then you're having a conversation with it just springing it on someone for no reason, probably not a good idea. Right. And what's the nature of the conversation, right? So, so here's the thing, like, I always point, I find that oftentimes people need to be reminded that you you have many rights where this is concerned. You have the right, for example, not to be weighed when you go to a doctor's office. And I find that people often struggle with that, like how to advocate for themselves. I had no idea that that was the case. I had no idea. Yes, yes, you can. You have the right to not engage in conversations about your weight within those settings as well. Here's the, and here's the thing I, I want to be, this is why this is really important to, to me. Beyond the fact that it is important because it is clearly a, a social justice issue. It is also a life or death issue. And what I mean by that is we have at the same time People who are fat, who die because their health concerns are not taken seriously by their health care providers. Um, and at the same time, we also know that we live in a culture that continuously contributes to disordered eating, something that studies have found a significant number of, of women engage in, not not just women, but I'm thinking about, for example, the study out of the University of North Carolina that suggested up to upwards of 75% of women 
um, engage right. in those practices. And I know well, that just if we're talking about right now during the pandemic, I think the stat is calls to the National Eating Disorder Association rose 40 percent. Yes, they did. And when we talk about eating disorders, according to the National Association for Eating Disorders, um, they have the second highest rate of mortality, second only to opioid overdose. So this is this is not a matter of, of hurt feelings, although to be clear, like don't be a jerk to fat people. Um, like that is a I mean, that that is something that unfortunately people seem to need to be reminded of. But this is a serious issue. And so when we talk about engaging in those conversations, the reason I am super thoughtful about them is because I, I, I am aware of how triggering that can be for folks who struggle with disordered eating or struggle with an eating disorder. So when we talk about not engaging in conversations unless one is invited in, I, I also am thinking like, and let's qualify, what do we mean by those conversations? Are we talking about a meaningful discussion? Or are we talking about like, do I look fat in this? We, we use diet culture to, as, as bonding exercises in a number of ways to, you know, we form relationships with others over like, you know, extreme fitness and diets and, CrossFit, you know, these yeah. kind of things. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so not only do you have the right to advocate yourself for yourself in, in healthcare settings, but you also have the, the, the right. So my go-to, if someone wants to engage me in a conversation about weight or diets or, or bodies, um, it is, I, I'm sorry, but I don't engage in discussions about body shaming or weight loss, except for the purposes of critiquing both. Mm. I also, you know, uh, support body autonomy. If, if someone wants to, if someone wants to make the choice to engage in practices that they believe will lead to weight loss, that is their right to do it. They don't, however, have the right to come into fat activist spaces and talk about that. Mm. And so there is a degree of, of nuance to that. Absolutely. You know, I, I wanted to ask about just kind of you know, your career and how you got into this stuff in the first place. I, you're a sociologist, you're a researcher, you meant that. So the the journey from research and then it, it kind of went from there into the classroom, correct? Is kind of how you framed it, right? Yeah. So I when I went when I went to graduate school, yeah. I um sociology, just like any discipline, you, you, you know, you, ha you have to pick areas to, to specialize in. Um, and so I specialized in um, racial and gender inequality, particularly in social institutions. And most much of my work revolves around looking at those inequalities in, in education. Right. Your two books, right? Are the race and gender in the classroom. Should schools be colorblind? Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and, the, and the short answer to that that question is no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they, should, so, they should not be. <laughs> that's page. I'm sure that's page one, sentence one. Right? Is no. <laughs> the, that the second book was part of a um, a series of books that that ask a provocative question about race. Right. Hence the question. But I'm always like, spoiler alert. <laughs> I'm going to argue no. Again, um, I don't think you probably have to get that far in the book to, to, get, to achieve that point. Yes. Um, how I came to incorporate into that work on systems of inequality um, 
you know, looking at uh, uh, body size, it was, a, it was a combination of things. Usually the story I tell, which, which is part of, you know, um, pivotal, you know, to the story is that, you know, as sociology of gender is a class that I, you know, regularly teach. And I had been feeling compelled for some time to incorporate a discussion about weight stigma and, and size discrimination or what I call fat phobia in my work within that, that, that class. And so had been, um, was doing some readings around that topic and, and, and came across some and was very compelled, felt very convicted to, to do that. And also I think too, like, you know, there are my personal experiences of being a, a fat woman. And while I have been various sizes within my life, you know, it, all of those sizes could be categorized um, as fat. And that includes, even if we look at these very rigid guidelines, again, around um, BMI. Right. Yeah. So it took, it was a, it was a longer journey to get there and, and start to incorporate that into my work. But as I describe it, oftentimes, as I went further down that rabbit hole in terms of the research, I was dismayed that as someone who had devoted so much of my career to studying racism and sexism and in institutions that I had largely ignored um, the um, fat phobia, even though it's always been rooted, rooted in those other systems. And so that was, it was at that point that I started incorporating that more into my own research and then created the class. And can you give us the quick origin story of your blog with Dr. Toon? Yeah, so I was on sabbatical and had been uh, doing you know, research, reading everything that I could, academic books, peer-reviewed studies, all around um, weight stigma and fat phobia, and wanted, as, as a sociologist that describes myself as a public sociologist, someone who's interested in building those bridges between the academy and the community, it, it seemed like a good way to um, reach folks who are not you know, in, who are not in the academy, who may not be in, you know, my class to be able to engage in these discussions as well. And so that too is part of that activism piece is inviting a wider audience into those discussions um, and inviting people to think about how we dismantle that inequality. Yeah, I'm glad you framed it that way. Yeah. One of the questions that's, I only have a couple more questions for you, but one of them that I end all my interviews on, and I just like the way it's framed. I think it's gonna be a really good piggyback off what you just said too. You know, I'm curious, like, what is something about, you know, fat phobia and fat studies, and kind of um, this very conversation that we're talking about that you think is more important than people outside of, you know, academia or outside of these classes might realize? And is there something just in general that you wish more people were talking about more when they talked about it? Absolutely. Yeah. That this is a social justice issue, like okay. point blank. And here's the thing. And I'm, as I just admitted, was guilty of this through much of my career as well. And that is folks like myself who are otherwise engaged in social justice research, activism, etc. 
So oftentimes fail to situate fat phobia as a social justice issue, but even worse, we engage in promoting it. And so I, I think that that is absolutely one of the things that I, I, I think people need to wrap themselves around. Um, it's particularly people who are already primed for that because they are engaged, they are concerned about systems of, of oppression and how to work to dismantle them. And the second thing is something I mentioned earlier, which is like this, this is a life or death issue. This is, this is serious um, and we need to approach it as such. Yeah. And, and so we, we mentioned your blog, we mentioned some of your books. When it comes to this, is there any you know, research or things that you've read recently that you were really excited about that you can like point to people who are like hearing our conversation now and be like, okay, I'm ready to dig in? Yes, okay. It depends on what they're looking for, okay? okay. So if folks are interested in, um, and look, here, here's the thing. I always point out that not only is this area of study interdisciplinary, which is great, um, oftentimes I, I want to highlight the, the people who are in public health medical fields who are doing great critical work around these issues. It is unfortunately not largely sociologists that are driving this work. That's something I'm pushing, you know, I and others are pushing our discipline to do. If you're, if folks are interested in more about intuitive eating, health at every size, like challenging diet culture. I would absolutely recommend books like Christy Harrison's Anti-Diet. Um, I would recommend uh, the book, uh, Just Eat It. Um, Laura Thomas is, is the author of that. She has a new book coming out about that as well. Um, and I would also recommend Carolyn Dooner's book, um, probably Just F It, The Just F It Diet. Yeah. Um, and then the main text or, or sort of, you know, for lack of better words, you know, Bible of intuitive eating, the, the book intuitive eating um, that came out in the early 90s. This is not new. This has been around for some time. People who are interested in looking at this from a historical perspective, there are great books like Amy Farrell's Fat Shame, um, uh, Sabrina Strings' book, Fearing the Black Body, and um, Joy Cox's book, um, oh my gosh, it's sitting on my desk and I can't think of the, the name off the top of my, my if head. If we can't get it, we'll, we'll throw it okay. in the end of the episode. Okay. I'll yes. make sure to get to it. Yes. So there are any number of great books that could be recommended based on how people want to enter this work. Charlotte Cooper's book, Fat Activism. What I would um, point out is that on the website, we do have a resources page. Yep. And that has all kinds of books. I try to I try to update it at least a couple of times a year. Is there a great Netflix documentary? Like I feel like that's what we need to get into the mainstream. Oh my god! Oftentimes, documentaries around this issue are um, more more problematic than, than helpful. However, I figured that was probably going to be the case, but I had to bring it up. Yeah, the um, there is a documentary called Fatitude um, that. Um, was it last year that that it was released or the year before? Yes. The trailer for that is also on your website. Yes, so I watched that. It yeah. is. It yeah. is. So, um, and so that's a, that's a documentary other P but other pieces in popular culture, there's never anything that's completely unproblematic. However, there are things that are, that do better than others. So that's, like, it sounds like our culture. Yeah. Yes. Trill on Hulu is something I, I would point people to. 
Um, and I'm sure that there are others as well. And certainly we want to amplify work that's being done that looks specifically, again, at how this intersects with other systems of, of oppression and um, researchers and scholars and, and activists um, uh, uh, of color and differing ability statuses and so on that are raising awareness about um, how those uh, uh, systems intersect here too. Absolutely. Well, Lori, that was all I had for you. Thanks. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'm so excited that we got to have this conversation. I am too. I could talk about it forever. So um, thanks for calling attention to the importance of it. Thanks for listening. And by the way, the name of the book by Joy Cox that she mentioned is Fat Girls in Black Bodies, Creating Communities of Our Own. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher, a professor, a coach in your life to be on this show. It's how we get incredible guests like Lori. Send them our way. It is teacherslounge at niu.edu. No apostrophes in that URL, just teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, subscribe, leave us a rating, share whatever you can do to boost us. Thanks to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the awesome music you hear every single episode of the show. Kind Ofs is spelled like sweet and kind birds, K-I-N-D-O-V-E-S. Find more of their music on SoundCloud. Thanks to Spencer Tripp for our Teacher's Lounge logo. And I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.